0: My favorite Edison story was when his uh, his laboratory, Menlo Park, burned down one time, and it's burning to the ground, and his kids are standing around, and he's watching all his dreams go up in smoke. And you know what he said? He turned to his voice, he said, Go get your mother. She'll never get a chance to see a fire like this again. <laughs> wow. What an attitude. Oh, goodness. All right. Okay, I want to talk to you today about uh, just uh, – few things out of my heart and, and really about comparison and how we as pastors struggle with that so much. When I first went into ministry, I had been at Jimmy Swigert Bible College uh, for about six years and I really get the chance to tell this story with three of us, four of us right up here up front. So uh, three of these guys right here will uh, very likely relate to, to what I'm about to say here. We we went to Bible College in this huge national ministry in the spotlight, TV cameras there all the time, and uh, just thousands of people. I went in 1987, I think Stuart and Sherry were there a year or two before I was. The college has been open about two years, I think two or three when I went. And it was nothing for us at, a, at an Easter camp meeting to have 10 or 15,000 people in that building together. And I mean, cameras, everybody there, everybody looking at it, jumping up and down. I remember one service that Used to have a preachers thing. Well, was it preachers revival or pastors would come in? And uh, I remember one when Don Brankle preached, and I think there were fifteen thousand people in that building, Family Worship Center. You remember, God? Let us just have a reunion right here for just a second. You remember there was up behind the choir, everybody was sitting. You wouldn't come here. She was clicking. Her thumb was wore out fifteen thousand times, but. uh, Stewart was playing the trumpet, always over there on the, on the right-hand side of the platform is where I remember Stewart. He would play. You could probably go back and see some of those old camp meetings. Go on Sun Life and watch some of those classics, and you'll probably see Stuart off to the side playing the trumpet. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, Stuart. I am so sorry. It will be complete retro 1980s time when you see that. My kids, there are a few of those chapel services on YouTube, and my kids love to go and watch those and look in the audience and see if they can see me. And I was lucky to dodge the cameras a lot. And I remember a service when they were all up, you remember that section up behind the choir? I had to sit up, they were like stadium, and they had seats all the way out in the lobby. Family worship room is this huge church with two levels. Balconies full. I remember being on that balcony and things get Pentecostal, and you could feel that balcony just shaking like this when people got shouting. So we go from this atmosphere of thousands of people into ministry, and we kind of had this expectation that ministry is this big, booming, flashy. Uh, and not to not to say anything bad about that. I mean there was some real powerful things happen there, but had some of the greatest musicians anywhere in the world there and and it was just such an incredible thing that we experienced. And then we go out and start pastoring churches. And it was like total culture shock. I, went, I left there when I graduated, and I went on the mission field to Honduras. And I was in a – I taught in a school in Tegucigalpa, Honduras that had about 7,000 people. So still for a time, I was in a really large church, and I met my wife there. Uh, actually, the principal of the school that, I, that hired me turned out to be my mother-in-law. So uh, we, we – yeah, that worked out. The well. <laughs> principal mother-in-law, she's just changed jobs a little bit. But uh, we, we got uh, <laughs> same sort of thing, right? Uh, this isn't gonna be played in Honduras. Okay. Uh, anyway, I worked in the school there, met my wife, we got married, and came back. And, and we went from a church of seven thousand. We got married the next day. We moved back to North Carolina, went to the Cornerstone Conference, and felt led like to pastor a Church. So, Tommy McGee was a bishop at the time, Tommy Biden and Tommy, I've been friends. He's led me through so much ministry. He's listened to my complaints and my cries for so many years now and blessed me so much. Tommy sent us to a church in North Carolina and said, why don't you try this? The church had 50 people, and that was a pretty good start for a guy who'd never really done anything. You know, he was going to send me to a church with about 50, so he said, why don't you go preach there Sunday morning and Sunday night? And I thought, well, by God, you know, I'm Jimmy Swagger, Bible College. I've come from this very place, and I know how to do this, you know, I'm basically the next Billy Graham, you know, coming on the scene now, and everybody's just going to love me, great things, so preach there, By Sunday morning, Sunday night, really thought it went well, they took a vote after the service, and voted for us not to come, <laughs> the first place I went to, they said no, oh, well, that was only 50 people, I'm used to being in church with 7,000, and I thought, man, I thought I could uh, start pastoring a big church, and even these 50 here won't have me. So Bishop did the next best thing he could do. He sent me to a church that had 20. <laughs> so we went to the church, and uh, they had about, well, we got there that morning. They had 35 people. And, I mean, there's nothing wrong with 35 people. Some of you pastor 35 people. Love those 35 people. Serve, though. There's nothing at all wrong with that. Love those people like a 1,000. That's great. But I'm just saying, when you come from a church of several thousand to 35, it's a difference. And uh, I thought, you know, we can do 35. I can handle this. And one of the board members came up to me and said, Pastor, I want you to know this is a really big day for us. This is like homecoming. This is when everybody's here. You know, So really, it's about 20 people. And they voted 100% to take us. So my wife went from a big city in Tegucigalpa, Honduras, to a very small town in Lenore, North Carolina, in a very small rural country church. And we started serving those people and just loved it and loved those people. But I remember I would before service, they would have Sunday school and I would go down in the basement to pray. And I would always do this. And it was the have you, you've seen the 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 Pentecostal Holiness churches and many churches of that era, they're built with a sanctuary, they got a really small lobby out front, really small bathrooms on either side, you walk in. You know what I'm talking about? At the front of the sanctuary, there's a door right here, and the stairs go down to the Sunday school. Did they, Did we all just have one plan that we all used? I <laughs> think to test that all over. You went down the steps and around, and the basement of it had a hallway down the middle with Sunday school rooms on either side. I bet we'd have 50 of those in the Cornerstone Conference. That era just built them the same. I would be down in the Sunday school room that was right under the front steps. And I remember I would pray, and in case you think I don't remember this, I remember this and it touched my heart. I would pray for people to show up. And I would listen for their footsteps to go over my head. And I could listen and tell if it was going to be a good day or not. And I remember times that I would be down there and I just poured my heart into a message and really thought I was going to do something for God. And really worked hard and just sought God for a message. And I'd be down in that little on I can still see the green carpet. They a carpet down there at the time that was kind of like AstroTurf. Turf. You know where they got it. Somebody donated it to the church, you know, so they put it down everywhere. That's what we do. Somebody gives us something. We put it everywhere. So uh, <laughs> uh, that's what was there. But I can remember on that carpet just, just crying sometimes because I didn't hear any footsteps. And then I would take that walk down the hall and I'd come around the steps and they would be in the period between Sunday school and church, you know, the Sunday school assembly when they'd talk about all kind of things and, you know, take up the birthday offering and all that stuff that we did for so long. And, and I would come up and I would look and in many days the sanctuary would be almost empty. And I would say, God, what am I doing? I really thought I was going to get into something that was going to, I was going to see some fruit. You know, God, I just really want this to happen. And I would cry a lot. A lot of days, Sunday afternoons were the most defeated days of my life when I would say, God, what am I doing? You know, I prayed, cried, prayed, and cried. And the church did begin to grow. We went from 20 to about 60. And and there came a time when we realized that that wasn't God's assignment for us long term. And we moved to the church where we're at now in 1997 and started with eight people. And I still pray the same. God sent somebody. I had an unhealthy need for numbers to validate me as a person. And that doesn't change. I want you to hear me on that. I'm just telling you, that doesn't go away when you get a thousand. It's just the marker moves. That's just honest truth. Now, you you may not hear a lot of people tell you that, but I'm going to tell you the honest truth. Uh, Some Sunday afternoons I have, even when a thousand people show up, can be just as brutal as it was when there was 20 if I didn't think it went well. There is an unhealthy need in some of us that we get validation from how many people show up. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe the church needs to be growing, and I believe God wants his house to be full. And I believe we need to to work and and be faithful and and believe God to grow our churches and all that stuff. But I'm just going to tell you, if you're searching for validation in church growth, it's not to be found there because the goal line will keep moving as you grow. It's kind of a joke among our staff as to how many people have to show up to make me happy. I mean, we have on Sunday. Oh well. If I can tell you right now, if it's under a thousand, I'm not happy. They don't like to tell me about it. And I remember the day when I had 20, that I just needed 25. But when I got 25, it wasn't enough. It went to 40. And when I got 40, it went to 80. And when I got to 100, it went to above 25. Then when I got to 300, it went to 500. Then when I got to 500, it went to 800. Do so I need to go on? I can do this all day. That's how I feel up the rest of this time, huh? When it gets to 1,000, it's, it's really an addiction. And it's not healthy. And it's not the life that Jesus called us to walk in. We've got to search down deep in our hearts and make sure that our motivations are pure. And that it's really about building the kingdom of God and not building up our own personal self-esteem and validation. When you get to that place, and, and, and you may hear it my voice, and I'll be honest enough to tell you, I still struggle with that from time to time. When attendance is down, I have to fight that a little bit. <laughs> if you're like me, when attendance goes down on a Sunday, I tend to think, what did I preach last week? When people left the church for years, I would take it personally. And people tell you all the time, Pastor, don't take it personally. How in the world do you do that? Your name's on the sign, for goodness sakes. You're the one up front the whole time. Two-thirds of the service is you talking. How do you not take it personally when people leave? I sat down with a young lady, another one of our board members. I have two board members in our church that can read me like a book that I can't lie to at all. Not that I would try. Not that I would ever try, but <laughs> I'm trying to sound holy up here. But uh, she's a, a spirit-filled licensed therapist. That runs a mental health uh, facility in our community that reaches out to people who have uh, mental health problems and challenges I mean she's on the streets with homeless people and helping people find housing Just, she's one of these tremendous advocates in our community for people with mental health struggles so she can spot it m- miles away and I remember going to lunch with her one Sunday and, uh, me and my wife and her and her husband went to lunch and and somebody just left the church, and I was down. And she looked at me and she said, What's wrong with you? And I'm trying my best to smile and look happy, you know, victory in Jesus, you know, I'm good, praise God, everything's okay. And she sees right through all that garbage, and she said, Something's wrong, what's wrong? I said, Well, such and such left the church, and man, I just really, I'm feeling like it's my fault. You ever have those people in your life who, who tell you what you need to hear? And it doesn't always sound so merciful. What I wanted is her to say, Pastor, it's okay. You're doing a good job. You're doing the best you can, and it's all right. We love you. But when I said they left the church and it's my fault, she just looked at me. She said, Andy, you're not as important as you think you are. I said, what? Her name's Kristen. I said, Kristen, what are you saying? You know, I'm a humble guy. She said, no, you're not as humble as you think you are. She said, do you really think people make all their life decisions based on you? She said, if you think people leave the church because of something you didn't do, then you must think the rest of us come because of what you do. imagine what my board meetings are like. <laughs> Just imagine that. And I began to realize that I had something unhealthy now on the inside of me that needed people to validate me. And sometimes I still struggle with that. And I, that's one of those things that I give to God on a regular basis. One of Those things that I have to do that. And I, and I suspect and I know that a lot of pastors struggle with that. Somehow we need to be needed we need them to need us. We need them to come because we preach. Every now and then in my office I overlooks the front of the church and there's a glass and I can look out sometimes and sometimes I'll walk upstairs and grabbing my mic or something and I'll see the cars just streaming in. And I remember the days when nobody was coming. And today there's a turning lane and they'll be lined up to come in. And it's a beautiful sight to see. And sometimes I'm tempted to think, boy, I'm letting the curtain down here. But I'm tempted to think, look at all those people coming to hear you preach. Boy, look at all those cars. They're coming to hear you. And you know that voice is not Jesus. (laughs) God reminds me, they're not coming for you. They're coming because I'm doing the work here. And you're a part of it. We struggle a lot of times with comparison. You ever struggle comparing yourself to somebody else? I mean, social media has made this so easy. Because pastors get on social media and they, they humble brag. I just want to praise Jesus to God be all the glory. We had 1,800 at Easter. We just decided some time ago that we were going to stop putting attendance numbers up. We were going to stop posting that on social media. If you do that, that's fine. And sometimes those records are wonderful things to celebrate. Don't get me wrong. And I rejoice with you. But I really got concerned that, that really looked like we were keeping score. And I didn't want to puff us up and discourage somebody else. I didn't want to play the comparison game, so we just stopped doing that. I'm going to throw this in for free. Here's another free thing since i got time to fill. The real number you want to be measuring now is not attendance but engagement. That's where you come in here to get that right there. The real number is not attendance, it's engagement. We have a process at This has nothing to do with anything else, but we have a process we call it celebrate, connect, and contribute. Celebrate is the people that come to celebrate Jesus, those are attenders. Connect, that's the people who are plugged in relationally to the church. That means they don't just come to church, they're part of a smaller connect group. And that's where discipleship happens. The third one is contribute. That's people who are involved in ministry. Our goal for a disciple is to get them in the church, right? To get them connected relationally, growing in Jesus, and to get them involved in in ministry and reproducing. Because a disciple always reproduces. The most exciting stat at Upper Christian Fellowship for us is not, yeah, we averaged X number. The most exciting number that we rejoice over is the percentage of people that are connected and are contributing based off of that attendance. And right now, our number of connect and contribute is hovering right about 65%. And we're really excited that of the crowd that comes, about 65% of them are either connecting or contributing. That's what excites us. If if you just measure attendance, you can have a revolving door in your church. But when the engagement percentage goes up, the body is being built. But for years, I lived on this comparing. And I tell you what, there's always going to be somebody that's smaller than you are and always going to be somebody that's ahead of you. No matter what you achieve for God, there's always going to be somebody that it seems like they're doing more, and they make it look beautiful on Facebook or Instagram. Yeah. Right. Don't we put the best pictures on Instagram? Yeah. On Facebook. Because they got filters. Nobody ever sits down at the table and puts a picture of a fried bologna sandwich. anybody like fried bologna? I do. Everybody always puts a picture like when they have a steak at an expensive restaurant or some beautiful meal. And, and the illusion is they eat like that all the time. Any of y'all eat those little sausages in the can? <laughs> What'd you call them? Okay, now Woody is the Southern guy. He said, Vienna. That's what my dad says. My dad I said, "Dad, it's Vienna, first of all. It's Viena. Here I'm making fun of my brother here right up here. My daughter loves those things, and I think they're the most disgusting things on earth. They're just above the potted meat stuff. you ever had that stuff? That's for cats, you know, that's for animals that eat that stuff. Oh, Lord. Good. My daughter opens a can of those, and that gunk that's in there with it, it's like, where did they get that? I'm going to need to slip out to the restroom if I keep talking here. I, I said that once to our congregation, and this is just what rascals that I pastor. I said that to the congregation, and the next Sunday I had 16 cans of that waiting on me. They bring it to me. Smart Alex, every one of them. If I say I don't like something, they'll bring it. So, uh, what was I saying about all that? Nobody puts a picture of Vienna sausages on Facebook. We don't put our mundane moments. We put our top moments. And if you watch people's social media, you'll compare yourself all the time and think, man, what a life they're having. Do you know you can actually, I found this out the other day, Steve, you can hire a company to actually produce vacation pictures of you and put them on your social media accounts, fake pictures of you in vacation spots. You can pay them a fee. And they will Photoshop you into exotic locations for you to put on your social media. And I thought, what a culture we live in that people actually would pay for that because they have such a need to be validated that they want to prove to the world they've been to some place that they've never been. That speaks to our desire to compare ourselves. And I'm going to tell you something. The people you're comparing yourself to, they've got the same struggles that you do. They've got the same insecurities that you do. They've got the same problems that you do. And you're always comparing yourself to them. They're struggling. I've gotten to know some people who who are, I've I've hung around with some people who are big name people before. I've I've met some of these people. They have the same problems we do. (laughs) I've seen that. I was invited, this is funny, I was invited to the uh, Foursquare National Convention uh, last week. The president is a friend of mine. I I knew him when he was a district supervisor. He became president of the Foursquare. And so he invited me to come. I've been with him through a a bit of a crisis in his life. And he said, I just wanted to thank you. I want to invite you to come to our Foursquare Convention. And uh, there are like 5,000, 4,000 people there in this big hotel auditorium, you know. And he had, my wife and I, these reserved seats right down front. And I thought, wow, this is cool. They're just treating us like a kid, you know. So I walk down. And they've got my name on the chair. And I sit down in the chair. And right behind me is sitting Jack Hayford. I do know Jack Hayford. He's the president of Forest Square, He's like this incredible Pentecostal statesman, you know. Man of God. He's like 90 years old. His wife passed away. He's remarried now at 90 years old. I'm like, go, Pastor Jack. You know, remarried at 90. He's sitting right behind me. So I'm like, told X I said, Jack Hayford's right beside up." Jack Hayford's right there. Preacher gets up, and it's this on-fire Pentecostal preacher. And about 10 times in the message, he's like, turn around and tell your neighbor that it's their year of breakthrough. And I'm like... No, nope, I'm not telling Jack Aford. I am not turning around to tell Jack Aford it's his year of breakthrough. No. Brother Jack had to make it without me. I'm telling you, you probably wonder, why isn't this guy turning around? I'm not doing it. But I've met some people like that. And I found out they deal with some things as I do. They question themselves when they, when they get done preaching. They question, "Did I say this right? Did I say that?" Do you pastors ever drive home on a Sunday afternoon and just unpack your message with your spouse and say, "Should I have said that?" That really stumped it. And my wife will tell me about ten times it was okay, it was good. And then, at a certain point. Yeah, sometimes it's just, and then I'll say, just, yeah, exactly, you do that. Yeah, Stewart, we're reading his mail too. Just good? Was it just, okay then? It wasn't great? I wanted it to be great. And you say something like that and faces light up all over the room because we all do it. We all do it. we had some great preachers in our church and they get up preaching an awesome message. you just rocked the house and everybody just loved it and God moved. And then we'll go out to lunch and they don't have their spouse. I'm the only one there. And they said, was that okay? Oh, man, Jesus just showed up and you're asking me. Comparison is a trap. If you live a life of comparing yourself to somebody else, two things can happen. You can develop an attitude of inferiority all the time. You can feel like you'll never measure up. You can feel like you're just not good enough everywhere you go. The opposite can happen as well, and it's just as bad if maybe not worse, you can develop you can achieve something and develop an attitude of superiority. Think, well now I've done something you know I don't move among these lower classes anymore. I don't talk to these guys. I've seen preachers before, and it's sad, but they get to a certain level, and they can't talk to the little guy anymore. Yeah. We don't need to be comparing ourselves to others. The ultimate price we pay for comparison is that when we compare ourselves to others, we're not free to be the individual, the unique individual Jesus called us to be. He created you in His image. He gave you unique gifts that nobody else has. He can do things through you that are unique to you. You have, a, you have gift mix in you that others don't have. There are people you can reach for Jesus unlike anybody else. And when you try to be me or I try to be you or you try to be a TV preacher or something else, you come across as very inauthentic. You've heard me talk enough to know that if I try to be T.D. Jakes, it's going to be comedy. I try to act like Benny Hinn. It's going to be crazy. Right? That's not a commentary on T.D. Jakes or Benny Hinn. It's just saying, I'm not them and they're not me. But if I compare myself to them all the time, I wind up being a copy instead of the original God made me to be. See, we're not to be measuring ourselves against each other anyway. It's Jesus that is our standard. You know, it's easy to be holy in our day if you measure holiness by everybody else. If I measure holiness by just staying this far up above the world, man, it's getting easier all the time to be holy. Because the world's lowering all the time. and I can just drop my standards right with it. Man, the only thing you need to be holy today is maybe smile once in a while. Don't be angry. I don't know. If you're measuring by the world. But man, when you look at the standard, Jesus Christ, and who he is, there's always room to grow. The good thing is he always gives us the power to grow through the Holy Spirit to be like him. Because that's why the Holy Spirit indwells us. So that we can uniquely express the image of Christ, the person of Christ, the power and presence of Christ in the world all around us. When I'm bound up looking at other people and trying to be like them. Pay a high price. I heard a pastor one time, he said, My dad sent me out to, uh, he was, he was uh, building a picket fence. Have you ever built a fence or anything like that? He said, uh, Son, uh, yeah, I'm talking to preachers, we're not known to be good and stuff like that. Uh, His dad said, son, I'm I'm going to be putting the pickets in. They had the rails put up. And he said, I'm going to be out in the yard putting the pickets in. And he said, I'm going to give you this original picket. He said, you're going to stand in here at the table saw, and you're going to cut each picket based off this original. And then I'm going to take it out. And he would come back and get one, and then he would put it in and come back and get another one. And the son would just keep cutting So the son mentioned the first one by the original, and the dad came in, and the son handed him the original. So the son, in his mind, is thinking, I'm doing the right thing. So he just kept handing the one he just cut off. Now, I'm not much of a carpenter, but I do know this. There's a term in woodworking called kerf. Anybody know what kerf means? That's the amount of wood that the saw takes off. And when you cut anything, the saw cuts out just a little bit. I don't know, what would that be? Uh, Eighth of an inch, maybe? That doesn't sound like much, but once you cut eight, you're off an inch. So after about 16 of these, the dad comes in, and he said, Son, come here. And the boy goes out and look, and the picket fence is going like this. His dad taught him a valuable lesson. He said, son, don't measure by anything but the original. You've got to measure back to Jesus. I just need to be like Him. I just need to let Him live in me. I don't have to be you. I have to let Him live through my life. You don't have to be me. Please don't. I wouldn't advise it. Be what He's called you to be. It's amazing to me that People in the Bible struggle with this. The Apostle Peter, we've talked a lot about Peter, and we we'll have probably mention him again briefly tonight, but Peter struggled with comparison for much of his journey with Jesus. He was a loudmouth guy who seemed very confident, and I found this to be true. Sometimes the loudest people in the room are the most insecure, insecure. Let me say that again. Some of the loudest people in the room are the most insecure, and they're covering their insecurity with their volume and with their brash personality. They're kind of preemptive. They want to preempt you. You ever seen a person who, who, who makes you mad immediately? You ever been around to kind of those gruff people who tick you off the first thing, they meet they you? You know, that's, that's often preemptive anger. They want to reject you before you have the opportunity to reject them. That's a hurt that's down deep inside of them. So they're pushing everybody away because... They want to be the madman. Oftentimes the most insecure in the room is trying to portray security. I've tried to teach my kids that. The loudest one in the room is often the one that needs a a need inside. And I think Peter was the guy. He compared himself all the time. Jesus went to Peter and his brother Andrew, and they, he called them away from being fishermen. and said, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they left their nets. They left their vocation. They left all their past life, and they followed Jesus with all their hearts. They're sitting around the table at the Last Supper, and Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And Peter, again, big mouth, didn't get it right, but once, i I know of. He said, Jesus... I don't know about all the rest of these guys, but I'm your guy. Yeah. Yeah. I won't betray you. I'm ready to die with you tonight. And Jesus just looks over and says, Peter, you man, you just have no idea what you're talking about. You don't have a clue. You're going to deny me three times tonight. I love the scripture. I I can't remember which gospel it is, but there's uh, there's evidence there that that, that Jesus was actually looking at him. Some of you know this scripture that it's like they turned and saw each other when this happened. Is that Mark? Is that Mark or is that I can't remember. One of them. One of the gospels, my college professors would grimace at me saying that. But um, he was there. He saw him. Peter effectively resigned his calling that night. He effectively resigned at all. Jesus had disappointed him. Jesus had not been what he thought the Messiah was to be. That, That opportunity comes often in this path of discipleship that Jesus is not exactly what you assume him to be and he does something different from the way you think he should have done it or would have done it. And Peter effectively said, I quit. I'm not his disciple. He renounced his position. And he only had one place to go. Fishing. The only place he had to go was back to what he knew. So he's sitting around with the disciples. He said, let's go fishing. And they go back to doing what Peter had always done. I hate it when I see a person take a step backward. See, Jesus had called him out of that. Jesus has said, "No more. You're going to be a fisher of fish. You're going to be a fisher of men." Peter renounces his discipleship, goes back to fishing. They fish all night and didn't catch anything. And then a man calls to him from the shore. "How you doing out there? Fished all night and haven't done anything. Why don't you cast your nets down to the right, and we'll start spinning." Peter starts thinking, wait a minute. This has happened before. We tend to run those two stories together, but this happened early in their time together, and it happened after the resurrection. He said, this has happened before. Cast their heads down to the right, and they did, and they brought in a huge haul of fish. And Peter said, it's the Lord. Drops his clothes, jumps in the water, swimming to Jesus. Why do you think he jumped out of the boat? Well, he loved Jesus. I wonder, maybe he wanted to get all this worked out with Jesus before the other guys caught him. He's just resigned. He's quit. Maybe he's thinking, I'm going to get in here and see what this is like before I get embarrassed by the whole crowd. Leave it to me. I'll turn something beautiful into this. But it's Peter. I think he's like, I'm going to go talk to Jesus because we've got to see if we're okay. Right? I mean, you just imagine this. Jesus has appeared to them. The, the, The timeline, I don't have it all exactly straight in my head. Some of you may have it figured out better than I do. But apparently he's seen Jesus, but you don't have any interaction Can you imagine the awkwardness of that? The thing I love about Peter, and this is powerful about his life, he did not separate himself from the disciples. Even though he had resigned, he stayed around. You still find him with them. I tell people all the time, when you fail, it's not the time to run away from the church. It's time to run in here. But anyway, can you imagine the awkwardness? You've quit, and all of a sudden, Jesus appears in the room, and you probably don't know whether you belong anymore or not. Awkward. So he sees Jesus. He jumps out of the boat. Swims to the shore. And I love this about Jesus. Jesus didn't say, well, 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 look who's coming here. Big boy told me he would never betray me, and I seem to remember when I was at my lowest point, you looked over at me and denied being my disciple, and I saw that happen. What's going on now? Here you come crawling back. Some of us would have probably said that. I'm swimming back to me. He's on the shore making breakfast. I always wonder where he got the bread from. Right. You know, bread and fish upon the fire. Is that the Bible or is that come and the Master called? I heard Leonard Ravenhill, I think it was, said that Satan had tempted Jesus to command the stones to become bread, and Jesus wouldn't do it. And on the beach, Jesus just picked up a couple of rocks and said, I'll show you, Satan, I'll do it now. Become bread. That's free, too. That's just absolutely free, and I'm not sure it's even true. Peter comes in, and Jesus restores him to ministry. In one conversation, Jesus said this, and, and this is so powerful, so incredibly powerful. He knew what Peter needed to say, and he teed it up perfectly. Peter had to be in these conversations looking at Jesus thinking, that is my master, and I failed him so badly, but I love him so much. Jesus knew what is in his heart. And the question he asked opened the door for Peter's restoration. He said, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, Lord, you know that I love you. You know I do. You know what's in my heart. He said, then feed my lambs. He commissioned Peter to two two ministries, fish for men and feed my lambs. It's the ministry we have as Christian leaders and as pastors to fish for those that are on the outside and feed those who are in the fold. It's powerful. He recommissioned Peter to minister. But guess what's still in Peter's heart? I heard a guy say this, and I thought it was worthy of, of, of thinking about it. It says, after breakfast, John 21, 15, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I kind of find that hard to reconcile. I'm going to suggest something to you, and you may disagree with it, but it's worth thinking about. I'm, I'm not sure Jesus is saying, do you love me more than John? Do you love me more than Thomas? The Bible tells us something that there were, you know, it tells us exactly how many fish they caught. That's like preachers. We count everything. No. I find it so funny that uh, God calls so many fishermen, and Jesus calls so many fishermen to be pastors, preachers, disciples. What's the first thing two fishermen say at the end of the day when they meet up? How many did you get? What's the first thing pastors say on Monday when you talk to each other? How many did you get? How many did you have? Had 153 fish. I heard a pastor say this. He said, I think Jesus pointed to the pile of fish and said, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than you love your old life? Do you love me more than you love this old pursuit? Peter said, yeah, Lord, I do. He said, feed my limbs. He was storied to ministry. It's amazing to me that even then, we are such a stubborn people. You remember how I said earlier that the disciples, even after being filled with the Holy Spirit, struggled with the Gentiles? Peter, the guy who was always comparing himself, saying, Not, I'm separate from this bunch, Jesus. I'm better than the rest of them. Even after Jesus restores him, in the very same conversation, John 21, 21, Peter points over to John and says, "What about him, Lord?" I love it when you read the accounts of the resurrection. John is very he wants to let us know 2,000 years later that he outran Peter to the tomb. It's just like a man, just like a preacher. First of all, he's the disciple that Jesus loved. Wow. I have two issues with that. Two things I think about that. The first thing is I think, how arrogant. But the the second thing I think is how wonderful. That he saw himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. Supposed to say that for tonight. I'm going to say that again tonight so y'all act like you just heard it tonight. Say that. That's how we need to see ourselves. But then he says, the first disciple outran Peter to the tomb. Apparently they had a little competition going on. They were in the top three Peter, James, and John. And he said, What about him? And Jesus replied, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? As for you, follow me. We challenge you and struggle with comparison. Somebody else has 20,000 people in their church. What is that to you? Follow Jesus in your own path. If your ministry grows to a 1,000. If it grows to 100, follow him and experience the joy of of Jesus. Because the real joy in life is not looking back at a big church or a big organization or a building. The real joy in life is having a relationship with Jesus and sharing that with other people in the body of Christ. That's the real joy. It's the real thing that we have to live for. As for you, follow me. Your standing in life does not come from success. Your standing in life does not come from comparing yourself to other people. Your standing in life comes from the fact that Jesus called you and said, follow me. And he wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to love you. He wants to live in you and move through you. Stop looking at what everybody else is doing. Hear me. You can learn from people without falling into comparison. You can go somewhere where God's moving without sitting there the whole time saying, God, why don't you bless me with that? You can learn from, from a stance of joy rather than a stance of comparison. What is that to you? Follow me. The greatest joy is just to know Him and to see lives change one at a time. One at a time. It's a joy being ministry. I hear people talk about all the heartaches and all the tragic stories and how terrible it is. It's a joy. When you love him and you're free to love him and love people, things happen. I had a lady come some years ago and she asked me to Pastor, will you go pray for my dad? Or no, she said, will you go visit my dad He's in the hospital? She said, but don't pray for him. I said, what? She said, don't pray for him. He's an atheist, and he will cuss you out if you start praying. And so I thought, game on. I can handle that. Let's find out if that's true or not. So I said, sure, I'll go see him. I went into a meeting. His name was Bill. And uh, Bill had this deep, uh, he sounded like a radio announcer. He had this radio voice. Big guy. He'd been a fireman all his life. And Bill, uh, there in the hospital bed, captive audience, atheist. We talked to him. He was semi-disgusted that I was a pastor. You would tell, oh, preacher, yeah. Whatever you got to do, get it up with and let's move on. So we talked to Bill, and we talked about firefighting and tried to find something to talk to him about. Kind of developed a bit of a rapport, you know. And then I thought, well, should I or should I not? Should I try to pray with him or not? And I thought, yeah, let's do it. So uh, I just grabbed his arm and said, let's pray. And I thought, here it comes. He did not start cussing. He just bowed his head, and he let me pray for him. It was kind of like, okay. So I prayed. We left. The next week, somebody had called in. I'll never forget this. Somebody called in, and they had one of those. You remember those chairs? That they probably still have them for, for older folks who can't get up, and there's a button on them, and it'll kind of lift them up and help them out. You know. Somebody had given one of those to the church and said, if anybody can use it. We found out that Bill's wife needed a chair like that. So I called Bill and said, listen, we've got a chair for your wife. How much do you want for it? I said, nothing is yours. What? Nothing's free in this world. I said, this is just, this is. This is free. It's yours. We took it over there, unloaded it. I'll never forget the look on his face. Eventually, he had to put his wife in a nursing home. Months went by. One day, he comes walking in on a Sunday morning. We kept developing a friendship with him. He comes walking in, looking around like, what am I doing here? He came in. He said, Andy, he said, You better check the foundation of this church because there's got to be a crack in it because I'm here. I I'm glad to have you. He sat right on the front row. I mean, he's going to be there. I didn't know what he was going to do. He sat kind of right over here, front row. Listened to the whole message he left. Came back the next week. He would critique my messages. He was a brilliant, well-read man. One time I told a story of something that happened on the Titanic. He called me that week. He said, Yeah, that story. He said, That never happened. He said, I guess it worked for your sermon, but it's just not true. That's the kind of conversation we would have. And I still say it happened, but uh, he kept coming. One day, he asked me. He came in. And he said, can I say something to the congregation? I didn't know what to do. You ever had those moments somebody surprises you and you just don't know what to do? I'm going to have to say 98.9% of the time you should probably say no to that. Maybe I'm wrong, but but it's been my practice that normally no... Something inside of me just said, let him do it. So I'm like, sure, Bill, we'll close the service today. At the end, you can say whatever you want. And I just, the whole time I'm preaching, I'm thinking, oh Lord, this is gonna be awful. I better preach good because it's going south. And I kept thinking, you are crazy for allowing this to happen. I'm preaching, you know, you could preach and be thinking about other things. And I was oh, this could be terrible. The, the service comes to a close, and I'm like, okay, here we go. Like, folks, just, we have something kind of unusual today. Uh, brother Bill, he was a brother, Bill. He didn't say atheist, Bill, but that's what he was. Uh, I said, Bill Stewart here, uh, he was well-known in the community. You know, he'd been a fire chief, actually, everybody in the community knew him. And uh, nobody could believe he was actually coming to church, you know. And uh, I said, Bill has something he wants to say. I'm like, bracing for impact. Bill stood up right over here. He turned around and he faced the congregation. He said, uh, I've decided. He kind of had an attitude. He said, I've decided to make Jesus the Lord of my life. And uh, just wanted y'all to know. He sat down. He didn't really act happy either. He was just like, matter of fact, I've, I've decided to make Jesus the Lord of my life. All right. He sat down. He didn't ask me to pray for him. He didn't inform me this was going on. We didn't do the sinner's prayer. I mean, the guy didn't even, that's not how we do it around here, Bill. I mean, I wanted to say it, but the guy got saved. About a month later, he called and you could see Jesus changing it. You could see him softening. You could see him being receptive to what God was doing. You could see him starting to care about other people. All of the community, people say, people call me. They say, is Bill Stewart actually coming to your church? I'm like, yeah. I said, Bill Stewart, the fire guy, Bill Stewart, is he coming? Yeah, he's coming. Does he cuss everybody out? Do you allow that in your church? I'm like, we don't. No, he's a nice guy. What happened? Jesus happened. A month later, he calls me. He said, Andy, I need you to help me with something. I said, What is it? He said, He's, he's a brilliant man. He said that, he put it this way He said, I have an extensive collection of erotica. <laughs> I'm sorry if that embarrasses me. That's exactly what he said. He said, I have this extensive collection of erotica at my house. That's how he said it. And he said, I would like this out of my house, and I'd like for you to come pick it up. And I thought, okay. First of all, I'm going to take somebody with me. And I said, Bill, okay. I, I had a little... Uh, Take a little Honda cord. I said, I've got my cord. I'll come and we'll put it in the trunk. He said, No, you'll need a truck. I said, Really? I said, What kind of truck? He said, A pickup should do. We went to his house and he had it all in black bags. He was very considerate of us. He had a pickup load of that stuff in his house. And he said, I want you to take it and burn it. We wouldn't even take it to the dump. Because we saw it as toxic material that needed to be destroyed. And it did. We had it burned. But I saw an atheist come to Jesus, haul all that stuff out. I was with Bill when he died. He called me to the hospital, and I mean, he was 85 or six when he got saved. I was standing beside him when he, when he died, right before he died. I, I think he died shortly after I left the room, but it was right before. And I was talking to him, and he was semi-conscious. And he took me by the hand, and he said, Andy, I want to thank you, because I'm ready to go now. I'm going to meet Jesus. If I die tomorrow, it's all been worth it. A thousand people, that means nothing. It does as individuals, but to stand up and say, we've got a big crowd coming to church, that doesn't do a whole lot. But to know, to go to his grave and say, that guy's in heaven, Riches says, that nothing else can do. Nothing can do that for you like that. And that's the joy we have, that we get to help impact people for eternity. And folks, we got it made. We're in the best thing that there is. The church, we get to do this. Y'all might need to call me and remind me of this after my next board meeting, okay? We get to do this. What a joy. What a joy. Are there any questions? We've got about 12 minutes now. We're going to go to lunch. Are there any questions? I'll be glad to answer any question I can on anything at all. You don't get me any questions right before lunch, do you? We're ready to go get some of that chicken that I hear is excellent. Thank you all so much. Are you ready? Do you need to do anything else? what do you want to come do anything else? Thank you all so much. We'll see you tonight. Come on back. And-